The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. We're back today with Ashwell Glasson and we're going to string together a variety of components that are now, more than ever, effective and necessary conservation tools for meeting the challenges of a very changed world, politically, environmentally, human relationships, and relationships to local resources, and how that connects to both local and global health. With key insights and trends directly from the African context and perspective, and that does have direct influences on all wildlife, not just the iconic species. So I'd like to welcome back Ashwell Glasson. Welcome, Ashwell. Hi, it's great to be back and thanks very much. I'm really looking forward to our chat. Same here. It's it's nice to have the continuity and the continuous updates of what's been going on and you're so well-versed and knowledgeable and active in so many um, different things going on in South Africa. So um we had you on in a couple of previous episodes, and our last one was right when the rhino trade uh, began to open up, and you gave us an interesting perspective of the background of uh, what that meant in terms of economics and where various uh, parties, so to speak, stood. So it's been about a month or so since that hit the global headlines. So why don't we start with a bit of an update on what's going on with the rhino trade well it's it's still been a period of tons of flux i think that's probably the best way to put it um lots of infighting and uh it's been quite polarizing there's uh, obviously the pro uh, trade groupings and the uh, anti-trade groupings and obviously I think for many, a sense of betrayal um, after our stance at CITES last year at the COP where we weren't going to pursue a trade even though there was some maneuvering. Um, so there's there's a little bit of um, distrust with government right now and it hasn't changed in the last um, month and a bit. Uh, a lot of people are uncertain as to what the real agenda of um Department of Environmental Affairs is uh, around trade and the obvious gap with um, how a person or a registered individual can get two um, horns out of the country for export purposes uh, for personal use. Um, And I think a lot of people are concerned about that because we can't guarantee (laughs) what somebody's going to do Uh, with two uh, rhino horns in uh, Malaysia, Thailand, Myanmar, uh, Laos, uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, or China uh, itself, or Hong Kong. Um, You know, so that's that's a tricky one because, you know, we can't enforce terms uh, on the other end. And I think that is is one of the big fundamental things that is scaring quite a lot of people. Well, it also goes into, you know, I, I 
after we spoke, I spoke with um, Peter Knights and Hong Huang and um, Alex Hofford with Wild Aid in mm. Vietnam and Hong Kong. So they, mm. Alex and Peter were both at CITES. So this brings in a little more of a sticky wicket, and I think we should just rehash a little bit. CITES banned the trade in Rhino Horn. South Africa then went turned around and said, okay, let's trade. And then you and I and several others, we discussed, okay, now there's an open trade within South Africa, but South Africa doesn't use rhino horn. So it is for export. Two horns can be, as we understand it right now, per person, uh, for personal use. And as you just said, where is this horn going? Vietnam doesn't want it politically and government or conservation-wise because of all the effort and mu- much money spent on campaigns throughout the countries you just named um, to stop the demand, to stigmatize using rhino horn as a status symbol within the you know swelling middle and upper class. And so mm-hmm. if Vietnam doesn't want it and China is shutting down ivory markets and doesn't want it. And all the um, Asian countries that are the destination where it's used, that's where it's all going. It, it puts conservation organizations, not just in South Africa, but at odds. So you mentioned polarization and, not, and, and gaps in understanding um, what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and literally how it's going to move. So if it's going to move and nobody wants it, doesn't that just really put a, a burden onto the law enforcement and international and transnational crime? Because if it's banned legally and these countries don't want it, doesn't that just open up the black market? Yes. Well, there's a couple of dimensions to this in terms of uh, the evolving debate. Uh, the one side of it is if uh, Wild Aid and other organizations continue doing as well as they are uh, in demand reduction strategies, um, and Peter's and his team is amazing, uh, they really are. If they continue to do what they're doing, uh, essentially what you're going to end up having uh, back in South Africa is a view that... Um, uh, then the state has said, well, there's a demand for it and we want to generate revenue from it in order um, to conserve the species and to put money back into state conservation agencies. So there's a, a devilish um, paradox hidden in this thinking. Exactly. Um, is that that whole concept is premised on... Uh, existing or continued demand for rhino horn. Or I mean, even the increased big, demand. Yes. The, the big one for me where the economics goes wrong, and I'll, uh, uh, I'll say this to anybody, I'm not an economist uh, uh, in the true sense of the word, but nobody has been able to truly quantify, at least from the People Republic of China's um, demand for uh, rhino and ivory. They are only projections um, and with uh, a very, very, uh, let's call it quite a a hierarchical system of government there uh, in their state, it's quite hard to get certain kinds of information out of it and otherwise it's very easy to get information out of it. But the fact remains our existing population of rhino even at a positive or conservative estimate to try and supply um, uh, China alone with rhino horn far, far outstrips what we can actually produce. Exactly. Um, we and, would and, and you and I discussed this in quite a bit of detail on our last episode, Critical Patriotism and Rhino Horn. So I mm. do suggest our listeners go back because there's several pieces at play. These markets are not single um, single commodity markets. And can black mm. markets and markets withstand 
price increases and hold out. And as you just said, you, assuming there is a continued and maintaining demand in Rhino Horn, while we're all trying to sit there and say, stop it, as, as we are with mm. Ivory. And um, it's creating a very sticky wicket uh, legally and for enforcement because if CITES is banned it and no country can accept it, it leads the black market trade routes. And then how do you know what's legal versus what's illegal? And then it puts a whole population, a nation's population, in into a, a quandary. Am I doing something illegal or am I doing something legal? The rhino horn was obtained legally through this new ruling, but according to CITES and according to everything we're hearing, don't use it. So it's it's created a lot of confusion. So let me ask a question. Has any rhino horn been sold yet since the ban was overturned in South Africa? Uh, no, I'm not 100% sure on that one. There have been rumors that applications have been made, but the regulations for actually regulating it and the system required and the app, I know it's going to sound funny, but just it's, it's, it's almost like in America, the DMV, you've got to go and apply for the license. Okay. That system does not exist, oh. even though the the uh, decision has been made around um, uh, trade and domestic rhino horn, the actual system of how it works does not exist yet. Hence why the update now is more about saying the system doesn't exist yet, um, environmental affairs needs to figure it out. and. A lot of the talk as part of the update has been of a similar discussion with um, the Kimberley process with blood diamonds um, going back into the early 2000, late 1990s, uh, a similar concept. Uh, Give us a rundown of briefly of what that is. As a control measure, what, what it did was it would um, essentially um, look at a set of criteria poor country um, to be able to trade in diamonds and blood diamonds is just a synonym for conflict diamonds right so child labor um, illegal mining uh, like uh, and I think everybody remembered the RUF and Sierra Leone and Liberia um, causing havoc uh, and everything and the Kimberley process was put into place to prevent illegal diamonds or conflict diamonds from being slipped into the legal pool. Um, and another example that we could use is, uh, and it's becoming a problem for Russia, particularly when they are taking it from uh, archaeological and paleontological sites, is mammoth ivory being slipped into um, living species right. of African and Asian elephant ivory. So mammoth ivory is is on the growth. When we talk about something like the Kimberley process or the rhino horn trade process, we're really, they put the cart before the horse for one thing, since there is no system in place. And now it's creating a whole lot of, um, I'm going to say, hassle and aggravation because it hasn't quite pulled together all the socio-economic challenges as you just highlighted. Conflict, you know, conflict areas, the needs of people, how is it going to meet the various needs, the needs of people in Africa, will the money go to conservation to the people that need it, the poachers, uplift their standard of living so they don't need to poach, can a market in Rhino Horn uh, keep up with an increase or maintain demand and who would be doing that the breeders and the pressure that it puts on the small rhino breeder and then especially wild rhino because that gets into the whole spiritual chi of why we want to use wild things and absorb that spirit um, versus something farmed and then um, into just the planet as a whole and balancing out these things while keeping wildlife habitat 
and communities all functioning in um, a world that's getting a little cramped and a little uh, chaotic and what we're going to get into in our next section here, um, a little more violent. I'll just drop a hint and and, and a direct hint uh, for our listeners. and When we talk about uh, the illegal trade in or uh, poached rhino horn or poached elephant ivory or uh, poached pangolins, you might as well use the word, these are conflict this is conflict ivory. This is conflict horn. This is conflict scales. Um, uh, it, that's kind of the language that is clearly coming out. Um, and even Eric Solheim, the director of UNEP, has um, recently clearly stated that the the groups of insurgents, anti-government forces, uh, terrorist groups, um, as well as those that serve them uh, in a very mercenary fashion, because most transnational uh, organized crime groups are politically neutral and ambivalent. They will serve he or she that pays the highest or can get them some kind of leverage. And um, with Eric Solheim having said that, he has also pointed out the obvious, is that if we are not careful with these decisions, we are going to legitimize um, some of these groups that are abhorrent in what they do to people and wildlife. Excellent point. So with that little hint, I think it's a good uh, moment to step away, take a little break, and listeners, stick with us. Follow us on Facebook and follow Ashwell Glasson on Facebook and also his organization, Dark Tide, which... Hopefully, one of these days, we're going to get into and talk about what Dark Tide is doing. And uh, stick with us, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild. No life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, Ashwell Glasson. And we are trying to get our 
world to understand that conservation needs a facelift. Conservation 2.0 World Update. The world has shifted. Conservation models need to shift with it. And that's a large and convoluted and complex subject because, especially in Africa, because of so many organizations and so many different focus groups and so many more pressures on wildlife and species and and planetary resources. So we ended the last section with um, the rhino horn trade and what it's opening up to discuss will need to necessarily be discussed how to separate out conflict ivory and rhino horn and from legitimate because if they all end up in the same pile it could end up as Ashwell had said legitimizing illegal and in today's world terrorist activities so I'm going to let you just swing on with that Ashwell and I know this is going to somehow naturally segue into technological shifts that we've made today Great stuff. No, thanks, Ellie. Uh, one key thing that's come out uh, when we think about conflict uh, initially, the conflict diamonds issue, uh, and now we look at uh, conflict. Conflict can be very local and it can be very global. I think we've all seen in the world. Uh, we're seeing it in the politics right now. We're seeing it in the dynamics of impacted and affected communities. And I don't have the figures on hand, but as far as I remember, in the last few weeks, we have reached an all-time high of um, internally displaced persons. It's a term used by the UN um, where there's been civil war, internal strife, etc., and we have now hit a new level in the world. Uh, we seem to be accelerating towards uh, different forms of conflict. and. Obviously, in the African context, um, the Kenyan government took the decision to burn all that ivory um, that they had as a statement. And I think that statement uh, wasn't just about the fact that there shouldn't be trade in ivory and they destroyed a stockpile. It was another way of legitimizing their thinking and making sure that if in that ivory there was some that was seized from poachers, that at that point it meant that that ivory could be treated as the same regardless, a dead elephant or dead elephants. Um, That was a very strong message. And I don't know if that message really came out enough in the world. People were more focused on the dollar value of it, um, et cetera, which of course is important. And I think I just read a headline, Zambia, I believe it is, is saying it's sitting on um, 100 million or something worth of ivory and they want to trade it. So we're seeing a lot of backlash from CITES decision. COP17 is going to go down in history as a biggie because, um, um, you know, with ivory, we were getting very successful at reducing elephant poaching. And, you know, Mm. very successful at decreasing demand in Asian countries and stigmatizing the the desire for rhino horn. And now Mm. so many countries, not just South Africa, and, you know, what Kenya did in burning their ivory was to say ivory without the elephant has no value. And you brought up a very good question. Did that work? And I'm not seeing Mm. any research to date. That doesn't mean there isn't any. I'm just not seeing any if it had an effect. Because what we're seeing, well, China is closing down their ivory markets. So we know in collaboration with other nations, statements like this do have an effect. But do we have a real-world baseline of burning the ivory did it have an effect that's that's an excellent question Mm -hmm. and how much time does it take to actually track that so um back to rhino horn and what you're talking about in terms of conflict and illegal horn versus legal horn and then the effect on people in the community, we're taking it right down to the community where that person and that rhino lives. Uh, an interesting point I, I want to bring into the conversation, Eddie, around local up to global conflict and the role that 
um, while the resources uh, can play or do play or may play in it, often um, it's about institutional strength in the state. A lot of the issues, and personal opinion, and I think uh, it's quite argumentative, but a lot of the issues that relate to poaching are about state failure. The inability of the state to support rural populations, and those rural populations reach a certain, um, let's call it group psychological point, a nexus point, where poaching becomes viable because it's the only thing that can help sustain them. Now, some of these communities make that decision or members of those communities make that decision at a certain point, whilst other communities, as we know in Africa, have, like in Mali, where Rory uh, is doing amazing work, have a history, a culture of utilization of um, wildlife. And we're getting a bit of a mix of that happening right now. Um, and that's why the likes of the Game Rangers Association of Africa, uh, Damien Manda and the guys with his team and his NGO are stepping into the breach because there isn't enough state capacity um, to deal with it um, as well. And as mentioned a little bit earlier when we started talking about technology, um, as we know in the world, if we use that uh, fantastic old uh, terminology that I think even uh, President Eisenhower uh, mentioned that we have to be very wary of the military-industrial complex and their influence on uh, economics and daily life. I, I remember he had a, a famous speech and it pops up once in a while. And what we're seeing um, is whatever's technology is developed um, that can work with conservation and wildlife normally starts with the military then it goes to law enforcement and then finally the very very poor third or fourth cousin five times removed conservation and rangers and protected area managers and community conservation leaders get access to that technology now i'm sounding quite sarcastic and uh, you can hear i'm being very dry about it but Positively, it looks like we have moved to that point where the technology is actually becoming available to help conservation. Absolutely. And it's also the demilitarization from the defense budget, so to speak, into the conservation budget. And created a lot of new technology geared specifically toward anti-poaching. So that brings yeah. in... Two other components that we want to get in today that we mentioned at the beginning, context and concept. You can give information, you can give technology, but is the context of it fully understood and is the local perception and concept understood? So we're now segueing into um, sort of the militarizing up of anti-poaching measures and um, you know, ex-veterans, ex-military people joining the anti-poaching fight as they leave the theater political wars into this war on wildlife, but using some of the same technology. And a question I continually ask is, is the gearing up and the warring up and the shift of this technology into the anti-poaching are we making enemies of the very people we need, the communities who are the front line between the wildlife and the international transnational markets? Mm, absolutely. Uh, you've touched on a, a, a very key critical personal point for me, um, is that the entire system is open to manipulation. Uh, and to use that, ex that expression, we could be pushing towards a zero-sum game or an endless escalation, which I think, uh, without speaking for Damien uh, or Rory and the guys, they might be seeing. Uh, because um, as we improve, uh, just as the Cold War philosophy uh, um, between the Soviet Union 
uh, and NATO and America, we saw similar levels of escalation taking place. So you get better technology as the uh, conservation manager and anti-poaching team and the poachers get better technology to counter. And unfortunately, there, there is likely to be a bit of that um, starting to influence things, partic- particularly with the kind of cash that these transnational crime uh, organizations and syndicates have. Um, and they have the ability to do that very quickly, whereas conservation organizations are probably five to ten years behind um, and struggling just to kind of have enough petrol and diesel uh, for their four-by-fours to do patrols. So well, there is a disjuncture well, it's in sort resourcing. Of, well. Conservation follows the rules, so to speak, and illegal crime doesn't. So therefore, yes. there is that and gap that, in getting up to speed. People tend to think the poacher is like some poor schmo somewhere that is that is not educated, is not knowledgeable, doesn't understand what's going on, but they have access to the same information, the same global technology, computer, internets, um, globalized banking, moving things around the planet in a globalized world that the legal markets do. So we're, it, mm. it puts a heavy burden on wildlife, international wildlife enforcement task forces. Our, our technology, the, the technology for good is being used for bad as well so uh, how, how do we draw the line where you know the same technology that it doesn't fall into the wrong hands so to speak well that's always the trick um, and I think it is about um, good security it's about ethics it's about the other things that we don't always talk about um, with conservation which is really about the leadership and the ethics around saying, okay, if we're going to adopt this approach, and for example, just to bring in um, the foreign military veteran um, issue in terms of training, um, GRA, the Game Rangers Association of Africa, has issued a statement of not concern, I can't speak for them, but just a caution to say uh, there are growing concerns about varying training standards being applied uh, across different countries, different regions, different parks in in terms of uh, anti-poaching or at least military-focused anti-poaching training. Um, And so, let's be careful. Obviously, we welcome any support uh, into Africa for wildlife, but it has to be on terms that are contextual and are really practical and work in an African way. Right. Uh, and I, I'm, I might be sounding a bit uh, contentious in saying that, but it's not that we don't want the support, but if you truly believe in Africa, then you'll truly adopt African-centric ways of doing things. Right. And, I'm, I'm, and I think that is a key thing for the veterans. You know, if any are listening to this and are keen to come out here and they want to do some good and contribute to, as you mentioned earlier, a non-political thing, something that's much bigger than uh, a disagreement between states or the war on terror, they can come and do and contribute and add value, but they must take the time. They really must take the time to learn and understand culture, uh, what the context of Africa is about, um, and just use that opportunity for their learning as much as their teaching and participation. Because we want them to go back to wherever they come from eventually, uh, if they return home, and share the message about Africa and its conservation needs. Um, And 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 that requires of being and along with that you know historic the historical context not just today's context and all the vibe that is going on today let's just use an example what's going on in Laikipia in Kenya and arming up people without naming who people are arming up a lot Mm. of this weaponry 
comes from colonial times and, you know, stashes from other countries when we backed other leaders and all these arms have been cached, stashed in these countries. Mm -hmm. And so we're getting arm ammunition and arms from decades ago now being used in a whole different way than they were originally um, planned for. So it's, it's tying into what you're saying in terms of this concept and conceptual understanding. Let's not just arm up but mm-hmm. and, and create more violence by providing weapons that could be used for civil conflict. Ongoing retribution or retaliation between ethnic groups or political groups or national groups or governments. Um, it's it's very tricky now because it all crosses over at some point or another. So when we we train up and um, try to fill this gap right now to protect and conserve the wildlife we have at this point without losing any more for the future, and we bring in all this new technology, then to ensure that it is um, used for the good, as you said, and, and, and transforms a bad place into a better place without crossing over into unintentionally arming up more war and violence. Well, uh, Elif again hit another critical point, and uh, um, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to point a finger at America or the UK or even South Africa, uh, but there is a common theme. Most of our greatest opponents, we have trained and armed ourselves historically, right? Um, and America's learned that um, in a hard way, and I. I have American family, and I empathize very strongly with that. But your point about short-term decision-making um, and saying, okay, let's just chuck weapons training and a bit of cash at the problem, um, that's our default position. As mentioned in our previous discussions, we tend to fall back to the colonialist fortress-type thinking militaristic type thinking to deal with these issues uh, where we need the integrated solution. Um, and for example, just uh, sticking with the technology theme, having um, uh, uh, the discussion um, and seeing discussions about um, this domain awareness system that is being rolled out, uh, I think the first country is Kenya, um, the Northern Rangelands Trust and a few other guys are rolling it out, uh, which was designed by um, Vulcan Inc., uh, Paul Allen's company. Um, and he, and I assume his team, are trying to develop something that will help with not poaching management, but having an, an operational management system that will allow um, different parks, different reserves, and... Most importantly, communities either in, adjacent to, or partners in um, wildlife areas to actually manage and share the flow of information. Because we still know information is power, and uh, those that have it can abuse it. But if it's done in an inclusive way, which seems like the route that this domain awareness system is going, it can be a powerful tool for good decision-making. And that brings me to a point that today, on average, the poaching of megafauna, iconic species, elephant and rhino, they're so well-tracked and either on a private reserve or with hundreds of rhino or a small reserve, most of the animals are known. Um, where they are, who they are, if not individually by name, where they are. So a lot of the poaching has escalated up through the upper echelons of um, government and the caretakers, so to speak, of the national parks or the the managers. So an inside job, in other words. So at that level, 
technology and information has the potential on a, in a much easier access to be used f- for personal private gain versus community gain and overall environmental protection. Mm. Would you think? Yeah, I think, yes, it does. There is a, I'm hoping, I haven't seen a demo of the domain uh, uh, system, but I'm hoping it has checks and balances that can detect, let's be uh, diplomatic, anomalies. So a corrupt, and let's just use a, let's just say what we're saying, a corrupt park manager that um, takes advantage of the information sharing to then actually organize poaching gangs and uh, teams to move in. Um, I certainly hope that the guys are building algorithm or something that can pick up on those things. Um, And I suspect they probably would, but if not, it would soon come out in a pilot of it, I think, as well. In this globalized world where a lot of the technology is centralized, we forget it's still, and it goes back to your point, it still comes down to the local community, the people who are living in the line of fire and of mm. both weapons and in the environment where these resources live, whether it's wildlife or insects or plant material, whatever it is we're mm. protecting with these, this global technology, we have so much, we have like an eye in the sky in the cloud, but we tend to forget there are individual people at play. No, absolutely. And I think uh, this technology, this particular system, may have its limits in that sense. And it kind of then gets back to about previous conversations of why we can't have a singular or what I like to call a binary approach, a black and white, a yes and no a A and B only strategy to dealing with the wildlife crisis that we are facing across multiple species, flora and fauna. We need to look at those elements. The human dynamic um, needs to be addressed. We can't just operate from, um, let's call it the traditional military ideological position or law enforcement position. Um, And that requires a different kind of thinking and in a way that's where I'm pro uh, some of the NGO active out there that are taking that triple bottom line approach. They are working with communities, in communities and actually getting communities to be the lead partners. In other words, they're not riding into rescue, they're actually trying to see how they can leverage best practice out of those communities. Um, and this and is what this is what those. you're all about. I'm glad you brought this up because it brings it all together. It comes down to humanizing and the human factor and bringing people yes. and humanizing back into the picture, mm. not just technology. Absolutely. Well, we all know technology is neutral. Uh, it's a tool. Uh, it can also sometimes affect the way that you think um, because you tend to get into mode and we even have technology has influenced the way that we talk about things. So now we have programs of action. <laughs> Whereas 30, 40 years ago, you had projects. Now we've got programs of action. You can hear how software even has influenced the way that we, we conceptualize things. Right. But at the end of the day, it's human capacity. Um, and when I say capacity, not the capacity just to do, but the capacity to feel, to empathize, to have um, the sense of ethics, uh, the multicultural dimensions, the openness, and hence getting back to military veterans and others. You know, people often ask me, or what do you think I should invest in? I've got some money and I want to support a conservation initiative in Africa. Should I throw money into a wildlife rehab center or should I look at something that's got to do with community conservation and seeing how we can help resource or improve things there or do I support one of the bigger NGOs? I always tend to go, go for the community, not because they need to be saved, but 
it's about enabling. And if you can support with a little bit extra, because one thing the statistics do show is that there is a huge poverty gap in Africa. And a lot of the things are being driven by that, abused by that, etc. So the human dimension crowns everything. It sounds terrible, but uh, if we don't invest in that... I don't think it sounds terrible because that's where it all began. Humans came up on a planet full of resources and over the past few centuries we found a way to have dominion and manage and unitize and monetize and utilize every resource into a price point. And I think what you're talking about is Mm. finding our way back and this is what I'm all about and this program is about and my organization is about bringing back people into the nature system. We've Mm. got to reconnect. Technology is great, but it has a tendency to isolate us um, from the environment and from each other. So I agree 100%. When you can support and uplift community and re-engage that sense of community, we belong, we have somebody who's got our back, and we are engaged in protecting our environment and our resources, then we have a planet that is functioning along with an economy that is based on the environment, not an economy that is running on a separate plane just to keep the economy going. Uh, he, he has a little phrase that I like to use. There was once upon a time in our history as humans where we lived with wildlife. What's happening now is we're being forced to protect wildlife and keep them separate from us. Right. So that, for me, there's a psychological perspective to it. And our default position has become the latter because we cannot make daily choices to live with wildlife for some reason. We've moved past it in a negative way, in my personal view, but that, for me, is the key thing and why fortress conservation measures will keep on being chosen as the priority measures over living together with wildlife. And that's where we're headed in terms of Conservation 2.0 World Update. This is an urgent operating system shift. So think of your iPhone or your computer when you install an entirely new operating system. We have a lot of great things in our history of conservation that has gotten us to this point um, that of awareness, global awareness, even into the most rural, com- local African community. They have access to information that they never had access to before. So now, as we've been talking about over the past several series of our Wild World episodes and with Ashwell today, that we have to move forward to a re-engagement of people into this technology as it's appropriate in concept and context per place. It's not a one-size-fits-all measure. Mm, Absolutely. Absolutely, Ellie. This brings us to the important role of citizen science. Well, citizen science, uh, if we take a step back, um, the cost of doing research, particularly in conservation and related domains, even, as we've noticed, NASA, for example, has palmed off uh, quite a lot of its basic research needs off to citizen scientists, everyday folk, you and me helping out. And I think citizen science could be one of the building blocks or bridging opportunities to engage local communities in monitoring and gaining an understanding um, of what's happening in the environment, whether it's basic climate at a microclimate level in a rural community and adjacent to a protected area, right up to uh, world-famous things like the Audubon Society's big birding week where people uh, bird watch and collect data, which gets sent through to Cornell's lab of birds or ornithology, 
Um, I think there's amazing opportunities to leverage citizen science. And the one reason I really believe it is because it makes you passionate. It helps stoke the passion for natural things again. Makes you sit in your garden, look at birds or whatever the particular uh, citizen science activity is, and your contribution back to the project or the, the initiative has value, immediate value. Uh, so, And especially in a world where climate change is affecting us each in our own backyard. We were talking previously, the rains have changed. You know, here where I live, the, the weather has changed. And we are seeing that in our backyard in terms of songbird migration, in terms of when we plant um, our gardens for food, in terms of, you mm. know, river flows, water, um, the way wildlife and the planet moves now that requires and mm. needs all of us as individuals to start monitoring to start keeping an eye on things so that the future generations have a way to function with this changed world no absolutely i mean there was a time in farming before the massive industrialization phase that started in the uk in the 1800s um, and then obviously spread to wherever. That was something we did every day. And I think we need, again, like we said, active citizenship, become a citizen scientist. In other words, Earth is hiring. We need yes. everybody to pay attention and participate. And that's something anybody and everybody can do because, on the whole, we have the technology available on a global scale to do so. Spot on, and you'll enjoy it. That's Absolutely. Get out there and watch what's going on. So, unfortunately, we're out of time again. Ashwell, it always goes so fast talking with you. It's been an absolute pleasure, and likewise, I think uh, the speed of light <laughs> so, it goes very quickly. Listeners, do not fear. Ashwell will be back, and we'll go on another uh, meandering conversation. Meanwhile, if you should have any questions, send them off to um, our Facebook pages, Ashwell or myself or Our Wild World or Wild Eyes Foundation, and we'll try to address some of your concerns. But in the meantime, this is Ellie Weiss, Ashwell Glasson, and our wild world thank you again for joining us this week be sure to tune in next monday at 11 a.m eastern time 8 a.m pacific time for another edition of our wild world with your host ellie weiss on the voice america variety channel think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 